right, so my guest today is a good friend of mine, Ryan Adams. Uh, Ryan, we're gonna talk about a couple different subjects today, one being Buddhism. Ryan lived in a monastery for a couple years and is a practicing Buddhist today. Very interested to hear about that. Also, we're gonna dive into some, some work that he's doing now. Uh, I think uh, it's great work. He's uh, doing some stuff in different child services and, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or using the wrong terminology, but foster care type stuff. So we'll dig into that. I wanna hear, hear what's going on there too. So Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yes, thanks for having me on, I'm excited. Yeah, so why don't we do this? Uh, give me uh, like a, a two minute rundown. Let's dig into your, your background growing up, things like that before we jump into the, the Buddhist uh, stuff. Okay, uh, two minute rundown, that's a good amount of time. Um, so I, I grew up in Iowa, um, central Iowa. I graduated from a small uh, high school in Madrid, Iowa. It's a little town, about 3,000 between Des Moines and Ames. Um, went to Iowa State. After Iowa State, um, graduated in 03, 2003, and, and uh, was in the Peace Corps in Paraguay for just over two years. Um, in the midst of those Latin American adventures I met and fell in love with a, a beautiful Norwegian woman um, and so after after Peace Corps I flew directly from uh, Paraguay to Norway um, and we decided to get married um, spent another two years roughly just under two years in uh, Lillehammer Norway um, with her we moved to uh, San Francisco uh, kind of on a whim in, uh, I want to say, 2010. Um, and and we, we did not last, although we're still very, very good friends. Um, I, I started working with, with kids who had been through trauma background there at a really good program in San Francisco General Hospital. Um, when, when she and I split up, I, I took the opportunity to do something that I'd always wanted to do, which is to spend some time in a Zen Buddhist monastery, as you say. And... Um, uh, was there for just over two years, uh, came back, and um, I've been working with, uh, again, with, with kids with a trauma background and, and uh, uh, mental health difficulties and behavioral difficulties pretty much ever since. Um, over the course of the last seven months or so, I've made a transition out from um, working within the formal system to stepping out and kind of, um, in, in a way, you could say doing some more, more bird's eye view, broad scale, systemic things. Okay, so <clears throat> walk me through this because it, it's not uh, obvious why, um, or, or it's not common that somebody that grows up in small town Iowa, um, you went through a lot of experiences, but then ends up in a Buddhist monastery. Mm -hmm. So um, you said it was something you always want to do. Can you make that connection for me? Between Iowa and Buddhism? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've gotten to the pleasure of meeting a lot of small town Iowa people, and I, yeah. you're the first person that brought up Buddhism. Yeah. So if you could make, how, how did you get? Well, I, I, feel like, I feel like maybe what you're asking is, is, uh, is, is almost why, how did I grow up in little town, Iowa, and then kind of live, uh, 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 take, take the road less traveled. Yeah. Because sure. I feel like what sure. you're really asking, sure. yeah. I mean, we'll get to the, yeah. the origins of my Buddhism a little bit later, but I have, uh, an older brother who influenced me, I'd say pretty considerably. Um, he, um, you know, he was philosophically minded and um, um, very much an explorer, an intellectual, and an adventurer. Um, and, I, and I think that was a big, big factor. I think um, 
I mean, hell, we got to also even just think about things like privilege, like like coming from a background where, where you know, I've, I've got the opportunity to even think about things like going mm-hmm. to other countries. Um, and, and kind of, you know, that coupled with just I've always, I think, had a very inquisitive and, and maybe steadfast nature. Um, that got me interested in, in travel. And I think travel in my youth was a, was a big... Uh, became a gate to, to subsequent explorations. Like when I was in Iowa State, I studied abroad in, in Florence, Italy. Um, I spent some time in Europe, just, I mean, on, on um, you know, garden variety tourism. I, I spent a semester in, in Durango, Colorado. So I think there were a few factors that, that just led me to, to do a lot of exploring and inquisition mm-hmm. or inquiring. Sure. Was your whole family that way? Uh, I mean, you... No, <laughs> I mean, no, no. I think I think uh, you know my my dad married my stepmother when I was nine years old, and um, you know I refer I refer to this person as my brother, but he's he's a stepbrother strictly speaking. But I think I think my stepmother and my stepbrother, um, I I got ex- I got exposed to a lot more, um, I guess cosmopolitan okay. <laughs> type types of things yeah, at, yeah. at about that age, and that really piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is that what led into, uh, uh, you said after Iowa State, you, you joined the, the Peace Corps? Is that, did I catch that correct? Yeah, so I, um, the, the, I think, yeah, there's a connection there for sure. I knew I, I, knew I wanted to travel when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was kind of also just, I guess you could say, graced with, you know, a desire to help people. Um, have a... a had a even as a kid had a naturally fairly compassionate disposition um i remember the decision to join the peace corps so uh, this would have been i think the summer after my junior year in college i'm almost sure of it and just like many a college student i had a summer job i was waiting tables at uh uh, carlos o'kelly's which which used to be up on Mm -hmm. west town parkway in, in the west des moines area and uh, we were back at, at my mom's house um, in Windsor Heights, sitting on the porch, um, fairly drunk, and, and just talking about stuff. And I, I got off on some rant um, about about the, the amount of suffering there is in the world, and especially the developing world. And, and the, um, my, my friend said, well, you know, if you do feel that way about it, you could join the Peace Corps when you're done with college. And pretty much I, just right then and there, I was like, oh, well, yeah, and then that's what I'll do. I'll join the Peace Corps. <laughs> and I did, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually, I appreciate that. Your, your friend pointed out if, if you're that concerned about it, there's something you can do about it, and, and you did it. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I, I'd say that's, I'd say I've been lucky in that sense, too, is I've, I've kind of, you know, because, you know, you asked me a question just a few moments ago that I really, to be honest, haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, which is, why have I taken a path that's maybe very different than the average person from, from small town Iowa, and... I think I've also been lucky in that um, I've just always had the disposition of, uh, well, yeah, well, why not embark on that adventure? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go yeah. for it. Yeah. So uh, you, you said Buddhism was something that you always wanted to, you were always interested in. Did I catch that correct? Or, or when when did you decide that you wanted to, to become Buddhist? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when did I decide that I wanted to become Buddhist? I don't know that I, I don't know that I actually started to think of myself as a Buddhist until maybe about ten years ago, something like that. Although the, um, the origins 
the origins of that go back further, at least in my in my story. Um, I had, uh, and and I, I don't think what I'm about to say is particularly uncommon for Westerners who wind up um, drawn to Buddhism or or maybe Hinduism, um, but. I had uh, a pretty powerful psychedelic experience um, in Amsterdam uh, when I was 19 years old. You know, I was, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, hadn't even taken a, a huge dose of, of hallucinogenic mushrooms, but it was the first time I had done anything like that. And um, I remember having a, a really vivid experience where, um, I would say, I would say everything about my surroundings was exactly the way that it always is. You know, I wasn't seeing trails or hallucinations or anything like that. Mm -hmm. The only thing that changed was that the constant chatter of the mind quieted way, 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 way down. So I was, I was really present in the moment in a way that I hadn't experienced before mm -hmm. at all. Um, and I remember in that moment um, having this insight of like, you know, when all of this chatter quiets down, there's a whole reality out there that's that's fascinating and and um, it's. Fa I remember feeling fascinated that for a very short period of time I was not super preoccupied preoccupied with myself, <laughs> with the self. I had the insight of like, you know, normally I just go around perceiving everything out there, in so far as it pertains to this this Ryan this thing and. That's fine, but that's uh, the word that kept coming up is that's very skewed. That's that's not objectively true. Um, anyway, so I had that experience, um, and I found it fascinating. I knew, I knew I had seen things more clearly then than I tended to see them in my day to day walk around experience. Um, but it it wasn't till I, I don't even remember maybe a year or two, three years later that I came. Uh, I bumped into a book called Be Here Now. Um, by Ram Das, who's a very well-known um, Western spiritual teacher. He passed away several years ago. Um, but talked about how he had had those experiences and, and had begun studying um, what he referred to as the Dharma and, and studied um, essentially how, how those types of experiences could be attained again and even maintained in the absence of substances. And I was like, oh, that's, that's what I want. I want reality. So, so your whole practice, your, uh, your segue into Buddhism is all about recapturing that experience that you had in Amsterdam. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it's changed considerably since then. My orientation towards practice and, and spirituality has changed a lot since then, but that was, that was the beginning. Well, um, uh, you know... I will, I will, you know, I still stand by what I said a moment ago that, that I, I, I think that um, w what I experienced in, in that moment was, um, if you'll pardon the expression, a purer experience of direct reality than what day-to-day what -day experience tends to be, um, or at least tended to be for me prior to practice. Um, and I would also go so far as to say I'm, I'm quite confident that there are very devoted practitioners who do um, dwell in what we would call nirvana on an ongoing basis. You know, naked reality with very, very little filtering of the uh, of the um, of the ego. Um, for me personally, 
you know, especially subsequent to studying in the monastery. At one point, it became, it really dawned on me, I thought, you know, in this, in this world that I'm in where there's so much suffering <laughs> and so many people who are suffering so much more than myself, um, how can I make my own individual private liberation the most important thing? Mm. And so... Uh, it seems selfish. Is, is that what you're saying? I would say, yes, I think it does. Mm. I think it does. Um, and so in that regard, I would consider myself a Mahayana Buddhist as opposed to um, a Theravada Buddhist. I mean, I'm not calling Theravada Buddhists selfish, but um, Mahayana Buddhism is a, is a school in which, you know, we do practice and we do try to get closer and closer in touch with um, naked reality, but, but primarily as a means to relieve the suffering of the world. Mm. So, a lot of questions I, I can take on that, but can we uh, back out for just a second and in simplest terms possible, can you explain what Buddhism is? That might be a, a simple question, but not to be trite, when I think of Buddhism, I think of a bald guy in some sort of a robe meditating. That's, and I don't mean to be derogatory when I say that, but that's, that's the image I have in my head. Can you explain what is it? Is it a religion? Is it a way of life? Is it, is there core tenets? Is there a belief system? Um, give some context there. Well, how, uh, I guess, you know, it's going to depend on, on, uh, you know, if you want the two minute snapshot or you really just want the penny tour or what, but <laughs> I'll say, I'll start with this. There's a, um, um, one of the, one of the, um, real pioneers who brought Zen Buddhism to the West is a, a guy named Suzuki Roshi. Um, he founded San Francisco Zen Center, which is in fact where I did my residential practice. Mm. Um, and a student once asked him, even, even in simpler terms or even more like really cut it down to one sentence, she asked him something like, can you just, I hear all these teachings, just boil it down to the shortest possible explanation you can give. Mm -hmm. And he reflected for a moment and he said, everything changes. So let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but that's, that's the penny tour. Everything okay. changes. Um, the Buddha taught um, he essentially taught the following that uh, existence on earth a lot of people a lot of people I would say misrepresent one of his primary teachings. You hear a lot of people say that the Buddha's one of the Buddha's primary teachings is that life is suffering. And he didn't quite say that. What he did say, though, is that life on earth involves a huge amount of stress and dissatisfaction. Uh, the, next, the, the next thing he taught was that there's a cause of that and that that cause, the cause that there's so much distress and stress and dissatisfaction, especially in the human condition, is that um, we are always trying to get things to be a certain way, make sure that our life circumstances um, are the way we want them to be, and that they stay the way we want them to be, that we keep things that we don't want at bay. I can relate. And that, yes, you were born <laughs> into the human realm. Uh, and that we, we, we um, try to hold on to things that are the way that we want them to be. The problem is that um, 
almost all phenomena are entirely out of our control. You know, you, you could say that I've, I've got a finite, you know, really tiny um, portion of control. I can pick up this can and take a sip out of it. Um, but um, the Buddha essentially taught that that, 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 that this, this endeavor to keep things to be a certain way in a universe in which everything changes is not only misguided, but is in fact the root of nearly all of our psychological suffering. And then, you know, finally he taught, and there's a way out of that. And mm -hmm. th then there comes the methodology that he, that he taught. So it, it's a posturing uh, yourself to the world rather than trying to um, deal with the dissatisfaction, the stress in the world by control, um, by posturing yourself a different way through these teachings and, and letting things go, understanding things are change. And uh, am I understanding that correct? I think so, yeah. I mean, you hear, you hear um, even, even in, in really pop versions of um, Eastern teachings, you'll hear you know, the catchphrase, let go. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's more than just a cat catchphrase, you know. Um, you know, the Buddha talked about attachments. You know, this, the idea that um, I, you know, I can only be satisfied if this if X, Y, and Z goes mm -hmm. goes according to plan, mm -hmm. my plan. Yeah. Um, and those attachments are really the root of the suffering, and so letting go of them. Mm -hmm. So when I say, um, when I say that I'm quite confident there are people who who have really fully liberated themselves, these would be people who have let go of um, all of their attachments. Okay. So is that, uh, and maybe you just answered that question there, but is this a, a deeper spiritual something going on here? Or is this surface level, uh, like self-help, your life will be happier if you live this way type? Does, does that question make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, I mean, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, it, <laughs> it's certainly closer to the first thing you said. Okay, sure. But uh, it, it, you know, as as with a lot of things, as as people get, as, as the years go by, people water things down. Mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of very, very watered down Buddhism. Um, that, that looks like what you just said that you know it's really just you know feel your feet on the floor when you take a shower in the morning and you know breathe deeply as you drink your tea and um, that's enough and, and really um, you know historically historically what the Buddha prescribed was um, required a whole lot more than that you know I mean the Buddha said if there's any way you can do it you know, if there's any way you can align your life to, to move to the woods with just a robe and a bowl and, and do nothing but purify your mind <laughs> day and night, do that because these attachments don't die easily. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's, so it's certainly closer to the former, but in many of its modern manifestations, the latter reigns supreme. <laughs> okay. So is there a... Does uh, that answer the question? It does. Okay. Yeah, it, it does. And I... Um, I can see without knowing much about the background. I think a lot of things uh, get taken out of deeper religions that maybe add more context and, and meaning surrounding them, and they they pull it out and put it in modern terms and simplify it. And which is it's probably good. There is they probably are helpful for life, but they probably shed some some meaning and some port, and importance when we do that. So is there a um, is there a central text like Christianity has the Bible, 
Jews have the, the um, Torah, uh, Islam has the Quran. Is there a central text to Buddhism? I would say with Buddhism, it's a, a little bit more complicated, mm-hmm. but but the short but the short answer is yes, and that would be the Pali Canon. <clears throat> so um, the Pali Canon, it, it's 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 much much larger than any of the texts that you just described in other religions. Um, the Pali Canon is is almost like a series of encyclopedias. Um, I cannot right now readily um, recall um, you know just as Jesus did not speak Hebrew he spoke um, Aramaic. Aramaic correct um, the Buddha did not speak Pali but he spoke something that was a, de- a, a, de- a, a descendant of not a direct but a descendant of Pali and I can't readily remember what that's called but at, at any rate um, so the Pali canon is is just as problematic as any other any any number of religious texts in the sense that, you know, the Buddha um, lived 2,500 years ago, uh, didn't write anything down. Um, his teachings were relayed orally from generation to generation to generation over 500 years. And then after 500 years, so this would be 2,000 years ago, people started writing down what's now the Pali Canon. Now I say, um, um, I say it's a little bit more, um, complicated in Buddhism because uh, uh, so right boy I'm, I'm trying to think of my time frame here but roughly speaking a few hundred years after the Pali Canon was written down um, some some monks over the course of actually it was written over, over hundreds of years began to write uh, the Mahayana Sutras and <clears throat> So these were actually, um, to to a degree, um, reformations of of Theravada, of of older Buddhist teachings. So you almost might want to say like something like the Book of Mormon Mm. or something like that. The difference being, well, there's two critical differences, I would say. Um, One is that the Buddha actually invited, he was very overt that, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I you know how in, in the New Testament there's there's that passage where um, uh, Jesus says to doubting Thomas, you know, it's it's great that you believe because I've shown you the proof, but the really blessed ones are the ones who believe on faith. Mm-hmm. The Buddha was very 180 degrees in the opposite direction. He was very much like, I want you to question everything. I don't want you to believe anything I say unless you examine this and it and it and it jives with with your deepest understanding. So I think that's a pretty fundamental difference in the evolution of Buddhist scriptures relative to the, real, the, the, the evolution of Christian scriptures. The other, the other difference would be, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the Book of Mormon obviously was the genesis of Mormonism. That was the birth of Mormonism, which is one small denomination of Christianity, whereas the Mahayana Sutras really took off and, and reformed in some way some of the Buddha's earliest teachings. Um, but eventually became um, an even larger school of thought than original Buddhism. Okay. Does that make sense? I just said it does. Through no, a mouthful at you. No, and I think you made a, an important correlation there that a lot of these texts 
uh, they become oral tradition for a long time and then they're written down. Yes. So how, how do these uh, these reads? Are there, is there uh, like a creation myth and other mythologies, uh, stories uh, with like a, a lesson in them? Is it letters? Is it, does it read like uh, Meditations of Marcus Aurelius where it's like his journal? Um, how does the text read? I think, I'll give you my impressions. I certainly have not read the entire Pali Canon and I, and I also certainly haven't read all of the Mahayana Sutras, but I think um, I would say, in a way, I, I, I would say that they're kind of similar to the New Testament, where it's a blend of sermons or discourses and also anecdotes that sort of demonstrate the teaching in an embodied fashion. Do you have any favorite stories? Ah! Uh, <laughs> oh! Favorite Buddha, favorite stories. Um, I've got one that readily comes to mind, but but it wouldn't be a good opener because it, it, there's there's too much context that's required. Um, favorite stories from from the text. Well, you know what I, I think was you know what I think is is a very telling story, and this goes back to the Pali Canon. Um, so old original Buddhism. You know, you asked specifically about origin stories. Mm -hmm. So when the Buddha was asked about stuff about, you know, who created the who created the universe and, and where did it come from, he said a couple of things. One thing he said was, which um, we'll say was of secondary importance, but he definitely, you know, he, he is de it's definitely attributed to him. Is he said well. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But I'll say this. If there is a creator who made all of this, he should have a really guilty conscience. <laughs> he should feel, you know, he's a very guilty God um, for having created this world of suffering. But but the, the main point that he drove home, not just with that question, but with um, um, any number of, of um, cosmological questions, uh, the Buddha said, You're, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on those questions. He said, uh, I'm, I'm teaching two things. I'm teaching that there is suffering, and I'm teaching that there is an end to suffering. You all, all you monks want to spend all day talking about whether the saints are reborn or not, or whether a God created the universe and whether God will destroy the universe. You know what it's like? It's like somebody has been shot with an arrow. And I'm, I'm coming along and saying, I can help you take that arrow out. And you're saying, no, 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 no. I need to understand where did the arrow come from? What tribe did the person who shot it come from? What was the angle that it came at before it got into my body? And once we talk about all of that, then I, he said, there's no time for that. I'm teaching you the path to end suffering. I don't want to talk about where the universe came from. So he was very honest uh, in the fact that he didn't know, which I, I actually appreciate when somebody can say, well, I, I don't know for sure, but it also, it sounds like he was very focused on solving one problem. And I'm wondering if that same um, focus to attention to detail or focusing your energy is what showed up in the Buddhist uh, monastery lifestyle. Uh, let me, let me back up a little bit. Um, and this might even be an edit for later because I don't want to, I don't want to miss um, speak, but he didn't so much say, I don't know. So I may have misspoken there. There's another anecdote where the Buddha, um, the Buddha, um, 
walked with the monks through the forest and picked up a handful of leaves. And he said, okay, which, which is more, the amount of leaves in my hand or the amount of leaves in the whole forest? And they said, well, the amount of leaves in the whole forest. He said, okay, just as there's that many more leaves as there were leaves in my hand, I've realized and come to understand that many truths about the universe, but I'm not going to talk about them. I'm only going to talk about these because that's what's going to help you. Mm. So I don't know if he exactly said he didn't know whether there was a creation, but he said it's not something he wanted to waste people's time delving mm. into. Yeah. Any other question about uh, focus? So I um, recently I uh, I read a book or listened to a book um, by a, a a former Hindu monk, and it wasn't a religious uh, text by any means. He was just um, his message in the book was teaching people how to concentrate and what he learned through living on a Hindu monastery. And I'm wondering if Buddhism has similar tenets and it. The way you describe that story about let's not worry about all this other stuff, I'm solving this one problem of teaching you how to get out of your suffering. Is that because he, he narrowed his focus because he knew that's, um, for lack of better words, how to achieve what he wanted in life was to focus on one thing? I, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> you know, my, I mean, I can't know, but my impression is... Um, I, I would almost go so far to say my impression is he thought it was the only thing that mattered. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of suffering in life and there doesn't need to be. <laughs> so so let's let's focus on that. Makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about your time in the monastery. What uh, what does a, a we'll say a normal day look like for you there? Um Well there was some variance depending on time of year. And strictly speaking, I was, so I was, it was at San Francisco Zen Center, which is, which is an outstanding um, place to practice uh, Zen Buddhism. Um, but, but they've actually got three different temples. Um, one in the, in the city in, in um, the Haight District of San Francisco. Um, one in Marin County, which is closer to a, a monastery, but is more of like a, it's a residential temple, but it's it's not quite a full-on monastery, and then one being a full monastery in the Ventana Woods. That's Tassajara, and I, I spent a, a total of just over two years at the, the latter of the two. So it was split between Green Gulch, which is the one in Marin, and, and Tassajara. So a typical day was, um, we got up very early, about four in the morning. Um, I'm out. No. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, I will, I have to confess, like, um, I, I thought that it, at some point, um, with with the limitation of the amount of sleep you could get, I thought at some point my body would adapt, and it never did. I was always, I was, I was almost always tired when I was in, in um, residential practice. Um, so we would get up at four in the morning. Um, there would be. Um, an hour-long meditation, and then there'd be a 10-minute walking meditation, and then there would be a 40-minute meditation, um, and then there would be about, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes of chanting. Then we would eat breakfast in a formal style called Oriyoki in, in the meditation hall in silence. Um, then we would have a very brief break. Then we would have study hall where we would we could choose whatever Dharma scripture we wanted to study and we would study there for maybe, I, I don't remember, it was maybe uh, 50 minutes. Um, and then I think 
we had, uh, I think from there we had like a, a very brief chore period. And then we would go back and, and uh, do, if I'm not mistaken, um, two more meditations, either one or two more meditation sessions of about 40 to 50 minutes. Then we would have lunch again in the meditation hall. Um, then we would have exercise and rest for, I think we had something like uh, two hours off, maybe just a little bit less than that. And then we would have a three hour work period. Um, and then we would have uh, two more meditation sessions again of about 40 minutes um, before before we would go to bed. No, it didn't. It was lights out at um, just after nine o'clock at night. So these, med I think meditations, we mentioned earlier that a, a lot of things seem to lose some meaning over time. Today, I think meditation could mean box breathing. It could mean taking some time to relax. It could mean uh, a gratitude, something or other. It could mean a lot of things. It could mean, um, you know, reading a text and thinking about it. What, is, what does meditation mean there? Mm. That's where it starts to really vary depending um, uh, uh, depending on what school of Buddhism you're in. Mm. Um, the uh, original Buddha's teaching was, um, you know, originally the Buddha taught um, uh, kind of a, a threefold orientation where he would. Um, the, the first, the foundation of it is a uh, sila, or um, ethical behavior. The, the premise being that if you're not behaving ethically, then um, you will never get your mind to quiet down. <laughs> your, your conscience and your, your greed and your hatred and your delusion will be running rampant if you're not behaving very ethically. Mm. Um, and then uh, the second step was samadhi, in which the Buddha prescribed, okay, you, you've got your ethics in order. Now your mind is ready to be quieted through a series, you know, whether it's breath awareness or, or very focused one-pointed meditation. Um, and then the final step was uh, the pasana or insight where, okay, you use this, this quiet mind that you've cultivated to really, really closely, closely, closely examine the nature of experience and the nature of reality. And, and after time, you will very, very clearly see that there is no, no self that is separate from the rest of reality. And once you do that, you don't have cause to hold on to anything anymore and you're free. Um, Zen does, has a great deal of overlap with that. Um, Zen certainly um, still prescribes uh, ethical conduct as the foundation of, of meditation. Um, that's not done away with. Um, but the meditative focus is, um, there's a there's a, a a Japanese monk named Ehe Dogen who um, I would say really radically reformed and, and uh, Zen meditation is known as Zazen um, and um, basically said hey you know what I realized is uh, you can you can once you've got your ethical conduct in order you can go straight to naked reality <laughs> you just have to keep doing it just just Drop all of drop all of your he would say drop mind and body away drop all of your concepts you can go straight there um, so uh, it's a very very different um, way of meditating um, but 
and, and in that sense, I, I would say Zen is is a very it's an advanced it's a it's an advanced course. It's um, it's not always it's not always advanced students that try to take it on, but I, uh, it, it it can be tough. They throw you right into the deep end. Mm. Were you ever able to uh, reach that same um, feeling or experience you had from your your uh, experience in Amsterdam through your meditation? More or less, yeah. Um, yeah, usually, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a fully enlightened being. I'll, I'll out myself, but um, uh, I, I would say my, my sense of ego and my sense of self are substantially diminished from where I practice, from when I began practice. Um, um, I, I am certainly lighter of heart and lighter of spirit, um, but as far as like ex direct experiences of, of what I would call nirvana. Um, where where the ego filter is completely dissipated. I, I don't know under the influence of psychedelics or not that I've ever completely experienced real full dissipation of the ego, but I think I've come fairly close and it usually does not last very long. But ye the short answer is yes. Mm, okay. Can you explain what enlightenment is? There's a lot of these terms that are thrown around. Um, I've heard before. I've always kind of wondered a what does that mean? What, what is enlightenment? Well, you know, you're also going to get, you're also going to get very, um, um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll answer that. I'll answer that to the best of my ability, but I want to, I want to take a step back to the ethical conduct. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, I, I also, I want to be clear that like, um, it's, uh, especially since we're talking about Buddhism in the context of, of you know, psychedelics as a gateway to, to Dharma. And I, I, I want to point out that one of the, one of the Buddhist um, precepts, um, and people, people practice with it in various ways, some in absolute ways, some in less absolute ways, but one of, the, one of the Buddhist precepts that Westerners have a harder time with is giving up intoxicants. Um, and so even though that was something that, that showed it, that showed me the the uh, a glimpse of of uh, naked reality. It's it's um, um, you know not using drugs is is how I roll. You know, mm. including alcohol. Mm. So mm. that's um, the 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 idea being that uh, you know if you're if you're adding you know alcohol or um, or marijuana to to your mind, it's not necessarily that you're doing evil. It's not necessarily that you're sinning. But you are adding yet another layer of clouds, <laughs> so it's harder to examine what's really going on. Um, so, what is enlightenment? I think uh, I think the short answer is seeing things as they are, as opposed to the way that our conditioned mind sees them. Um, I heard a, a really great Zen master once say, um, "You know, it can happen one of two ways. Um, either you see very, very clearly." that there is no separate self and that leads you to let go of everything or you gradually let go of everything and that leads you to see that there is no separate self um, I mean if you it, it's something you know you'll hear you'll hear Sam Harris for instance talk about this on his on his podcast or in his writings but it's to some degree it's something that anybody can um, start to get a glimmer of you know what is what, what am I really, really, really perceiving if I break it down to a nitty gritty? You know, there's, there's visual input, 
there's auditory input, there's olfactory input, um, there's, there's tactile input. Um, which of the five senses am I leaving out? I said olfactory. Oh yeah, you get, what are we missing? Uh, did you get, you got texture, you said touch. Um, taste. taste, there's taste. There and then there's, there's mental activity. You know, there's the, there's ideas. Mm -hmm. Those are the, those are the six things that are happening in consciousness. Um, these are just empty phenomena um, that, that are doing their thing. The idea that there is a separate self or a separate pilot that is experiencing them falls apart under really, really close scrutiny. And in fact, the idea that there is a, a separate self or like an uh, automaton that's experiencing it, that would fall under the category of, of um, mental activity. You know, you as a separate self don't exist without your own self-reflective thoughts. Mm. But you got to really examine to, to start to even see that. You know, you can talk about it in theory, but um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty deep. So, um... All of this is leading to the or or dealing with the issue of suffering, yeah, in the world. And if you can overcome um, that, uh, I guess mental paradigm we have, uh -huh. then you can release your suffering. Do, do I understand that correct? Yes. Okay. I mean, almost all of it. That you know, the sure. the, the Buddha was also clear that. You mean I'm not enlightened? <laughs> um, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be able to tell you one way or the other. But the Buddha was also very clear that um, um, even if you do that, you're still subject to old age, sickness, and death. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, and that still hurts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why why did you leave? I um, the the monastery. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think I mentioned that I had um, uh, I had worked with kids in the foster system. Or, or kids who had very, very acute behavioral needs for about a year prior to. And that was something that I, that I fell in love with right away. I mean, that, that field and those kids, that it just took me, you know, as, as, does, as the, the people who work with them. And after I had, um, um, I remember sitting in um, meditation. I don't remember if we were in retreat at that time or if it was just the day-to-day -day schedule, but I remember I was in a... Um, um, meditation session and I was kind of you know when you people people tend to believe that when you go to uh, a monastery or a temple that you you get really serene really quickly and that is really not what happens you're all of your neurotic stuff comes up and has to be dealt with because you don't have any distractions anymore um, and so anyway one day in meditation I was looking at um, I was just kind of examining the nature of some of the neurotic patterns that come up. And I remember observing, um, well, they're certainly adamant. You know, they keep coming and coming and repeating themselves. They'll clamor for your attention no matter what. If you try to push them away or suppress them, they come back with a vengeance. If you try to ignore them, they sneak around through the front door and they, they come into your consciousness. And the only thing that really heals them is if you truly meet them with unconditional love and acceptance and I really had a moment where I was just like oh they're just like the kids that I work with and and then um, from there I, I had a, a growing um, 
a growing sense that I wanted to take the fruits of the practice um, that, that had been cultivated there in Tassajara and go back to, to working with the kids and I've really never looked back from that. Mm. Um, I, that actually leads uh, me into a question I want to ask you. I think uh, an ob objection a lot of people would have, if, if they were to have an objection, would be, well, it, you know, it's, it's great if you're living in a monastery and, you know, you can meditate for five hours a day. And, and But, you know, I have a family, I have kids, I have responsibility, I have a mortgage, I have a job. What lessons do you think... Um, an everyday person could take from what you learned and uh, apply to the to their life. Hmm. Well, well, the first thing that comes up for me is I think there's um, a lot of truth in that objection. You know, um, uh, there's a reason that I I am not spending the vast majority of my life in a monastery. You know, and that's because I think the most important thing is to engage the world in a um, in a healing way. Um, some some Buddhists, especially older traditional Buddhists, might might find some disagreement there. But what lessons would would someone with a busy life take from 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 it? I, I mean, you'll suffer a lot less if you put other people's well being ahead of your own. That might sound counterproductive, but it's true. <laughs> If you, if you put other people's well-being ahead of your own, you will suffer much, much less. Um, there is nothing in the universe that is worth clinging to or holding on to. Um, and... Please spend your life in mindfulness because the average person who has never practiced meditation in earnest is probably unaware just how much they are talking to themselves in their mind throughout the day and not just talking to themselves in their mind throughout the day but doing so to the exclusion of paying attention to their lives mm. I love all, all of those uh, the, the first one really uh, caught my attention um, basically about uh, Turn your awareness away from your own suffering and put it on others and, and try and serve them through it. I'm re rephrasing what you said, but I think that, that's basically the gist. Yeah, we're, we're all so stressed out because we're always chasing our own happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's something I, I found uh, particularly true in my life, especially in um, uh, dealing like with, with money. I've noticed that, um, you know, if, if I'm dealing with a financial situation that when I was younger, money was a lot tighter now I'm fortunately in a pretty good situation but when money would get tight the more and more I thought about how to solve my own problem the worse it got and I found that if I just took the money I had and gave it to somebody else in need my problem you know internal problem felt a lot more relaxed <laughs> yeah like um, a, an amazing change of internal yeah. state yeah unbelievable so I, that, that really resonated with me what you had to say there yeah um, so you left to go back and help children. Let's, yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me what, what you did from there, and then maybe we can lead into what you're doing now. Um, hmm. So um, the agency that I worked for in Northern California, um, its, its motto was um, 
unconditional care. The, the person who founded the agency, um, you know, his backstory was he, he had worked in the field in, in his younger years in, in the 80s, I believe, and was horrified to see how frequently programs, residential programs, would take kids to help them with a, a given behavioral problem whether it's aggression, whether it's it's elopement, whether it's drug use, and then kick them out when they exhibit that behavior enough. So the guiding philosophy of this agency was, um, at least in its founding years, was we will take any kid no matter how challenging and we will not kick them out no matter what. And, you know, I'm still, I was still pretty young when I, when I left the monastery. This would have been, I was in my early 30s, some, somewhere thereabouts. Um, and, um, and so, I mean, I was very gung-ho about that, you know, and, and I think there was a really, uh, a, truly a blend of altruism and savior complex <laughs> that, that led to that gung-ho-ness, but I was, I really, really loved this notion of, um, you know, we're there for this kid or these kids, no matter what, no matter what they do, we're going to show up with, with healing hands. And that doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable. That doesn't mean we're not firm with them when we need to, but it does mean we're not going to give up on them on it, under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, but when I came back, um, when I came back from the monastery, um, I was privy to, you know, conversations in which I heard people saying, well, we can't take this kid because he's got too much aggression. And we can't take this you know, this kid, because they've been sex trafficked, and we know that that's a really hard pattern to break their running in. And I was, you know, in my idealism and enthusiasm, I was, I was mortified. I was like, wait, what happened to the unconditional? This uh, unconditional love became yeah. very conditional. Yes, <laughs> really conditional. And, and so the boss said to me, he said, you know, if you feel that way about it, Ryan, there is a new model that I'm working on for, for the hardest kids, but you'd have to live with them. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And so, um, I, uh, they, they renovated a, a duplex specifically for the purpose of, of fostering um, kids that, that um, Santa Clara County had no answer for. Um, and, and I became a foster father in, in, in that context. Um, I, that lasted for about three years. I did other things for the same agency. I worked with parents. Um, I, I supervised direct care staff in, in schools for kids who, who had very real struggles. Um, community-based work, um, yeah, variety of things. Yeah, you did a number of things. I, uh, I think it's it would take a very uh, a certain level of just being weird. <laughs> That's not where I was going with that. <laughs> uh, a certain level of of patience, or I, I don't know what it would take, but to to live with the the kids that are worst, the worst off. Um, I think those are the kids that mo need the most help, uh, but I think it takes a special person to take that on, and you did. Thanks. So kudos to you. How did, how did you find that experience? Do you feel like you were able to help, or is it? do you feel like after that that some people are just so far gone, there's nothing you can do? Uh, oh, oof. You, you know, well, I, I, um, I know I was able to help. Um, the, the first young man um, who, who came to me, he, he was, um, uh, you know, very, very outspoken about being in Norteño and wanted to be a, 
you know, wanted to be a gangbanger his whole life, was pretty clear that he didn't think he'd live very, very long, and, and he, um, he turned his life around very successfully, you know, since then, I mean, he's a grown man now, but he's, um, um, you know, he himself has been a correctional officer in, in, um, high security prisons, I think including maximum security prisons. He's done casework helping people who are on parole. Um, so he's really turned his life around and has, has in fact become something of a peacemaker in his own right. You know, unfortunately, I think there are, there are those cases where, you know, um, um, I, I also feel that I've certainly seen cases where almost everything that could have been done was done and the damage was too severe. That's a reality sometimes mm -hmm. too, you know, I, I, I yeah. Yeah, uh, one thing I think I've probably heard, uh, I've heard a number of people talk about this. I think Jordan Peterson comes to mind, but uh, in his practice, he realized that um, there's nothing somebody can do until somebody wants to help, until somebody wants to change. To, in your experience, was there, uh, was there conditions that happen that somebody decides they want to change or... Um, is that at random? Is that uh, is that somebody's spirit? Is that somebody's uh, pain has gotten so bad that they want to change? Is, I'm I'm interested why some people want better and some people don't. Does that make sense? Well, you know, I, I when I when I try to take like a I, I try to take like a five hundred thousand feet bird's eye view, and and I would actually frame it somewhat differently um there's a there's you know there's i think and, and i did not come up with this phrase but um it's 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 been said that that we need to reshift our thinking with, with these kids from what's wrong with you to what happened to you mm. and um from that five hundred thousand foot bird's eye view um vantage point I, I guess it, it, it's less a matter of kids who want to get better versus kids who don't want to get better and more just a matter of kids who, who have been traumatized to a point where, where the, the healing just isn't, isn't going to happen. I mean, it, it can happen to a degree, but to where um, being an independent member of society is not going to happen versus those who... Um, who maybe have experienced a little bit less, but I mean, the, you know, it's the devil's in the details there. That's a very nuanced question. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there are of course questions of temperament and and personality and um, um, you know, or how much you know, how much support does a child have around her? How much support does a child have around him? Yeah, you know, I think that's a, a terrific point you made. Uh, you said rather than um, you know, what, what what's wrong with you? How can we fix you? It's 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 what happened to you. And I think there's a great deal of, um, you know, call it healing or, or trust or progress, whatever you want to call it, that can be made just by um, taking the time to understand somebody. Uh, you can cultivate a lot of trust, and I think you can uh, inspire a lot of change. Whereas if you go in with the attitude of, I'm going to fix you, um, there's no trust there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting to hear you say that because... Um, when I, when I was newer to supervising, um, in, in 
Fremont, California, when I was training newer staff, one of the things I would routinely tell them very early on in the training process was, you know, the way to talk to the kids is talk to them the same way you would talk to anyone you're not trying to fix. Yeah, that's perfect. Beautiful. So uh, let's let's talk about the project you're working on now uh, before we wrap this thing up. I, I want to hear what, what's going on, what are the details, what, what what's happening? So it's actually, you, you may not even be fully aware of how good of a segue you just, you just laid out for me because uh, I, you know, I think uh, um, within child welfare, I think within the helping fields in general, but I'll speak more for the child welfare um, and child mental health and behavioral health sectors. Um, we have a long, long way to go in terms of getting away from the how do we fix this kid model? Um, how do we fix this behavior and, and check it off the list and move along? We have a long way to get in terms of, of um, evolving from that point. Um, we certainly have a long way to go in terms of centering a child's um, community and family in their healing process. You know, we're still very much, by and large, a bunch of professionals trying to come in like a SWAT operation, you know, teaching Johnny, well, you know, Johnny, you, you break things, and so every time you want to break things, you need to squeeze this stress ball instead, and great, now we've done our thing, we can do our billing. The problem is, um, you know, you can't fix a human being or a kid the same way you can fix a ceiling fan or a carburetor. You know, it's, it's just that these are very, very different, different things. Um, and so what, you know, and, and I don't mean to give short shrift to service providers or the services that they provide, you know, there are, there's a lot, you know, sometimes you've, sometimes you've got to fix a behavior, <laughs> but, but I think that tends to be symptom treating and what almost all services overlook is um, they do very, very little to add to a traumatized child's sense of belonging, especially, and uh, a child's sense of purpose, or a way that she can contribute, or a way that he can contribute, or the way that a parent um, can, can have a greater sense of belonging, or a greater sense of um, purpose and contribution. Um, I've also, you know, one thing that we almost always overlook in our in our fix it paradigm is, you know, if you if you want to help the kids, start by helping the parents because we want to keep kids with their parents mm -hmm. and we want to keep a, a, a strong, healthy um, family unit and community mm -hmm. where a kid does feel safe and protected and doesn't feel like people are trying to fix him, feels like people love him. So, um, with that in mind. Um, there are coast to coast, and that includes Iowa, um, there are a number of preventive and very family and community-centered services called Family Resource Centers. Um, family Resource Centers are very grassroots. Um, they're not always called Family Resource Centers. Sometimes they're called, um, you know, uh, family support centers, neighborhood resource centers. But what these will often look like is, you know, you get, um, 
you get a group of parents and you get a group of community leaders who really have their finger on the pulse of, you know, what does our community need? What do families need? What do the kids in our communities need? And let's start, let's start doing something that's tailored to that. You know, this might look like a, a place where parents and families who are struggling can go to get a little bit of respite. It can, you know, the more families are struggling, the more isolated they become. So it can certainly look like a place where um, parents who are struggling can come to enhance their social circle, their social connection. Um, they can offer concrete resources in times of need, you know, um, you know. You always have to be careful of things like enabledism, but there is something to be said when people are really, really at a point of crisis for um, giving food, uh, diaper banks. You know, a family resource center can look like a lot of things. The difficulty that family resource centers um, run into is that they, um, because they are so hyper-local, they're often very siloed and they're often very under-resourced. Um, they, they do not get any dedicated federal funding. Oftentimes they don't get a lot of state funding. And so what, um, what we are working toward now is um, with the help of a nationwide nonprofit, we're actually trying to help Iowa's family resource centers to form a statewide network with one another. Once the family resource centers know about one another's existence and they are cooperating and collaborating, a few things can happen. Um, one of them is uh, they can adopt more uh, data-driven, scientifically proven model fidelity. You know, we've shown that this this works, and these are the these are some of the interventions that we are going to um, be be adopting and implementing in our in, in various family resource centers, FRCs throughout the state. At least as important is the fact that they, they, they are no longer siloed and they're no longer hidden. And that means that a network of family resource centers can become one unified voice to solicit more private and public funding. And so then, then what we have is what, what can really be um, really giving the funding to what I consider to be some of the most effective services and interventions to, to keep kids from ever winding up in a residential facility to keep families from ever being child welfare involved in the first place. You know, interventions that are um, defined by people with living experience, led by parents and parent advisory boards, um, malleable to the individual needs of families and communities as opposed to service providers coming in and fixing it and, and putting funding there and, and, and putting attention there. Um, I think I think you get a lot more um, you get a lot more healing and a lot less fixing that way. So if if I'm understanding this right, um, it sounds like you're going upstream from instead of waiting until the kids had been through the trauma, you're going upstream. You're helping the family so that situation hopefully doesn't occur. Not only that, you are um, connecting a lot of these resource centers so you can kind of do this at scale to um, to. To, to bolster what's going on. Am I understanding this correctly? You, I, I really like the way that you said upstream because that's that's exactly true. You know, my um, I, I really, anytime I can prevent um, or anytime we can prevent a child from being removed from their family and put into foster care, that's a huge success. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the data are in, you know, the proof is in the pudding and, and the science is very clear that once kids are removed from their families and put into foster care, they do not do well. Um, so yes, strong yes to the upstream, 
Also a strong yes to um, uh, the scaling. Um, the only thing I would say is, you know, it's we're not there yet. This is an early scale initiative, but we've got a lot of the right people on board, um, and and it's picking up momentum fairly quickly. But we're not we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. So, um, my understanding of symptom uh, of systems is when things are small and siloed, you have the benefit of autonomy, but you lack uh, a big support. When you have a big network of things, um, you know, the larger the scale, you have more support, you have more resources, you have more access to more information, things can come bureaucratic. Yes. Uh, I, we don't need to dive into your whole business plan, but are, are you doing things to hopefully mitigate and, and maybe um, uh, curb anybody's concern that, you know, if there's a resource center in a yes. small town in Iowa and they're concerned that if they join your, your network that they're going to lose some of their personal autonomy, uh, are you doing anything to, to curb that, that potential problem? I don't know if what I'm asking makes sense. It makes total sense and I'm, I'm impressed that you've got that level of insight because that's, you know, what, what you're asking about is, is very much the core of why this is the, um, the, the path that I've chosen because, um, the way that I've worded it in the past is we, you know, by, by approaching it from this angle, we will have one foot in the system and one foot out of the system, you know, really to kind of take advantage of both sides of that. Um, so a couple of things. One is um, it's something that we've named outright and, and that a lot of us are very acutely aware of, you know, just to be you know, brutally blunt about it, um, there's there's a very real fear that we talk about that if we accept the wrong funding stream and we do it without um, the appropriate conversations beforehand that this could get looped, under, you know, taken under the wing of the status quo. And then we've, you know, just... That's what you're fighting against. Well, I right. wouldn't even say I'm fighting against it, but at, but at least, but at least um, you know, I like the idea of... of um, you know, there has to be a child welfare system. There has to be a foster care system. You know, these, these are not evils in and of themselves, but I want to prevent families from, from getting there if, if we ever can. So, you know, I, I prefer something that's, that's going to be upstream from it, as you say, but I don't, you know, if it just, if, if we accept the wrong funds at the wrong time without, without appropriate planning, all we've done is toss more gears into this, into the same machine. Um, but also, you know, the, um, I would say this, this is one safeguard that, that is, is really, really important. The nationwide nonprofit that's helping us to collaborate like this, they don't, they have standards. They have five standards and, and please don't ask me to, to say all of them right now because I, I probably could, but it would, you'd have to edit out a lot of emming and awing. But um, in other words, what they have are guiding principles, and they are data-driven, and they are you know scientifically backed, but but guiding principles are not the same thing as airtight, rigid rules, and so I, I have a lot of faith in um, the National Family Support Network um, because I've had these conversations with their their founder and their executive director um, about precisely this, about making sure that what we are offering. To these resource centers is is recognition, strength in numbers, and guiding principles, but not assimilation. Sure. Okay. 
Um, so I, we've been at this a little over an hour, kind of as we wrap this up. Did you did you say the name of, of your your network here? Did I miss that? Uh, right. We don't have a network yet. Okay. Where, where we have a we or have do you, a, do you have a name of your your uh, I don't know if it's a business or a nonprofit. Yeah. I guess Iowa FRC Planning Committee. Okay. And what are you guys looking for right now? Are you looking for uh, donations? Are you looking for people? Are you looking for connections? Are you looking for strategic partners? Uh, what are your needs? Right all now? of the above. Absolutely all of the above. I would say our needs are... Um, so there's, there's three action steps that we're really focusing on right now. One is um, we, we want more parent and community leadership. Right now, there are 25 of us, two of whom are parents with lived experience. Three if you count me, but I'm a special case. I was a foster parent for three years. I, I, as a system, we have more than enough professionals telling families what they need and what they should do about it. I want this, we want this to be community-led. So we want, you know, if, if there's someone out there, if you're a parent who has um, if your family's been at any point of a struggle, if you've, if you've been served or misserved or underserved by um, a system or the system, you know, that's someone I would love to talk to because we want, those are the voices that we want leading this. That's one thing, you know. Um, two is we are in, in the just beginning the process of identifying as many family resource centers as possible in the state of Iowa. Um, and, and that's a that's a process in and of itself, um, because you know we can't invite these resource centers to to network if we don't know who they are. Um, and and there's a lot of them out there, but there's many 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 that we've not identified. Um, and then third is we are um, uh, yes looking into um, looking into prospective funding. That's the that's the action step that um, I want to be the most. Um, judicious about for, for some of the reasons that we just identified. So, you know, we're not at a point where we're ready to start asking people for, you know, start asking systems or, or foundations for, for money or donations. Um, but we certainly want to be on their radar. Um, and we would certainly love to have someone from philanthropy at the table um, as, as a guide and, and for people to be aware of us. So we're certainly data gathering on the, on the fundraising portion as well. How can uh, somebody reach out to you? If, if any of the things you sure. just talked about. Yeah, they can reach out to me directly. They can, um, my email is uh, im, I-A-M, at readams.org. So im at readams.org. Um, they can, they, my phone number, I, I've got no problem giving it to your audience, is 515 um, so reaching out to me in any way, shape, or form, I'd have, I'd have no difficulty um, letting people know how they could be of support. <laughs> That's great, man. Well, I really appreciate it. I think it's great work you're doing. I think it's very necessary. Um, yeah, it, I think what you're doing is, is really important. I'm glad you're doing it. I like what you're doing, too. I think it's, I think it's important. Project perspectives. Thanks, man. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Mm -hmm. No, just uh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for what you're doing. And um, I, I guess I'll double down on uh, my, my, parting, my parting words that uh, anyone out there who wants to be a little happier, focus on someone else's well-being.
it'll work. That's a great way to end it. Thanks a lot, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Wade.